welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. Now, some of you might remember at the beginning of the year, we kind of kicked things off with a conversation with uh, HSAA President Mike Parker. And that conversation had to do with the EMS situation in Alberta. You might also remember we had to throw a bit of a disclaimer up at the start of the thing. Well, guess what? We're talking about EMS again today, so we got to do a bit of a disclaimer, disclosure thing again. So in the interests of clarity, honesty, transparency, all of the good things, um, and in no way in an attempt to bolster my own credibility or the credibility of the show, I need to be very, very clear. I am registered as a paramedic in the province of Alberta. I do work as a paramedic in the province of Alberta. I'm currently on leave, um, but yeah, I've got a little bit of a, a bias, obviously. Uh, Our guest is also a registered paramedic in the province of Alberta. But one thing that we need to be absolutely crystal clear on, the conversation that we're going to have today is based on information that is available to the public. It's either based on media reports or it's based on FOIP requests. There is no proprietary information internal to any employer or organization that we're going to be talking about today. Need to be very, very clear on that. Neither of us, myself or our guest, are representing in any way any organization, any group. This is just a conversation about the data that speaks to the current situation in EMS. With all of that being said, I want to say a big thank you to our guest for joining us today and welcome Ryan Middleton to the show. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. A uh, longtime listener, first time caller. There we go. Now, did I cover everything off there? Is there anything that you want to add just to make sure that we are ironclad, bulletproof? Nobody can say, oh, those darn people. Certainly. I think I'm, I'm appearing in, in my role or capacity as a resident of Alberta first. And I happen to have some knowledge of the industry on the whole as a result of my job working within it. But this is, like you said, all stuff that's public. Nothing, none of this is personal information. None of it's health information. None of it's business information, which are the three protected classes of privileged information for employees. Okay, perfect. Good. So with all that out of the way, <laughs> before we get into the nuts and bolts of what we're here to talk about tonight, uh, let's just do a little bit of who is, who is Ryan Middleton? What's your story, man? Who is Ryan Middleton? That's going to depend on who you ask. If I... If I if I boil it down, I'm, uh, I've been a resident of Airdrie, Alberta for about 22 years. And then for the last three or four of those, I've been working as a paramedic in Airdrie. And then for AHS for about 12 of the 13 or 14 years, I've, I've been registered with the College of Paramedics. And uh, only recently have I sort of found my voice as a civic advocate or a proponent of healthcare and labor rights. It's going to depend how you ask, but that's, that's basically the broad strokes. Broad strokes are good. So we're here to talk about a couple of different things. The, the, the broadest stroke of the theme of today is the, the current situation for EMS resources as based on publicly available data and FOIP requests. I'm going to keep saying that just because I know that there's going to be some people watching this thing. Um, but we're here to talk about that. But I think part of that needs to sort of start with some some definition and some context. So based on the publicly available information that you've read in the media and the the FOIP requests, what are the big concerns 
that people should maybe be aware of when it comes to the situation in EMS? You're asking a layperson that just happens to know a little bit about it. I'm not a policy expert. I'm not a budget expert. But um, again, if we're zooming out big picture, it's probably the stagnation of the number of resources in proportion to the population they serve. Perhaps a lagging budget behind perhaps a municipality or a province that would have pegged their budget to population, demographic, geographic growth or call volume. And really just that delicate balancing act of looking after your employees as far as attraction retention, but also making sure that they're not languishing, you're not having unit hour utilizations that are so far below the targets that you're paying too many people to do too little work. I don't think we're in any danger of that anytime soon in this province. So let's talk a little bit about some of the the numbers here. So I we did a little bit of pre-reading. We we didn't want to look too dumb in regards to, to talking to you because you know the words already. You're using the terms. Um, let's talk specifically about what is a red alert? What is that? And I know that we defined this back when we talked to Mike Parker, but maybe we picked up one or two new listeners, viewers. So what is a red alert? Sure. If we're going to get into the, the vernacular, the, uh, the jargon of the industry, that's used broadly to describe a period where in the selected geographic zone, there isn't an available ambulance, whether a calls of pending or there are no calls pending. Some provinces or municipalities call them code zeros or code blacks or level zeros. But here we seem to have stuck to the, the red alert terminology, even going back as far as city of Calgary days, when they were infrequent and rare enough to be announced to staff on radios to prompt them to do things like consolidate patients in hallways or finish up paperwork, basically to get back in service so they could be recommendable for an emergency. Okay. Now, this is where I think the context piece gets really important because we looked at a piece from Global News uh, that came out in 2015, and it tracked the number of red alerts going all the way back to 2011. Um, and I don't know if the data that you have goes back that far, but what Global reported was that in 2011, there were a grand total of zero red alerts in the city of Calgary. In 2012, there were 10. In 2013, there were 14. In 2014, there were 60. And CBC just recently reported that uh, in the first six months of 2022, there were 2,522 in the city of Calgary. It seems like there's some growth there. What's, what is, what is, let's start with the, what you've FOIPed. What is the, the FOIP data that you've obtained show? That was one of my, my firsts, and you never forget your firsts. So I figured in the industry, uh, we complain just like anybody else. The guy, Tim Hortons, is going to complain about hot in the kitchen. Paramedics are going to complain about red alerts, workload. And I thought, well, at the very least, um, we should be working with active and truthful data so that we're complaining about the right stuff. So the first ones that I requested were a little regional. I asked for a lot of questions of AHS about the workload that Airdrie paramedics and ambulance did locally and in the city of Calgary, but I tacked on one in there, just the number of red alerts for the zone. And that Calgary zone is sort of spanning from I'd say Innisfail down to Fort McLeod, and then you've got Kananaskis to Strathmore. Sort of that's our chunk of the province called the Calgary Zone. And it's considerable. There's like 1.7 million Albertans that live there. 
and I wanted to know how many times we had hit red alert. And I think that was in 2019 and 2020. And you're right, the, the growth of that chart is, is a pretty linear marching lockstep upward. And it just seems like almost an unmitigated freefall where we went from single digits within the last seven years to thousands and thousands per year, where in the first half of this year, we have beat the entire year of 2020, the entire calendar year. So it looked like we'd maybe made a dent when we went from 3,327 in 2020 to 2021 had closer to 2,700. But like you just mentioned, we're, we're already past 2,500 for the first half of this year. So I'm thinking we're, we're aiming for a podium finish right now in perhaps the wrong sport. I, yeah, I don't know that this is the kind of growth that we necessarily want to want to see in Alberta. I'm no expert, but that's what I feel like. Um, now, has your data that you've foived, I mean, those are some, some staggering numbers because for full context, um, what was the number that you said for 2021 again? 3,326, I think, is the number that uh, came up during a couple requests. Okay, give or, give or take a little bit. I'd love for anyone to fact check me on this stuff. Um, I got it directly from AHS, so if, if anyone's got an issue with it, I guess they can, they can call the 1-800 number. And anyone can do a FOIP. I think that's really, uh, before we, we move on too far, I think it's really important to highlight that the, the FOIP process really is as simple as making a FOIP request. The, you can do it for the government. You can do it for any government organization. And that, I want to talk about your experience with the FOIP process in a bit. But I wanted that number because here's the thing that, it, that really strikes me from, from the numbers that are publicly available. Um, 2011, zero red alerts in the city of Calgary. 2021, 3,326. Um, that is, that's a lot of, that's a lot of numbers extra from zero. Agreed. Um, and then, so if I'm going to take it one step further, we're talking about a red alerts where if there are a single uh, patient somewhere requiring an ambulance, they will need to wait until one of those ambulances engaged in an emergency in another municipality that's outside of the Calgary zone or in an offload delay at the hospital, they can't even have one start going toward them until someone is freed up and returned to the system. Once that single ambulance, that single drop in the bucket has returned to the system, we're still in what's called an orange alert, which is also tracked. Both the duration, the instances, the average duration per instance, that's all stuff that anyone can ask for. Anyone can pay $25 and anyone can wait 30 days and then it hits you with a spreadsheet. And the red alerts almost get all of the sexy media attention, but the orange alerts I'd say are just as stark and just as dire because if you're in Okotoks and that ambulance frees up in Didsbury and that's the only one in the system, you're looking at a greater than 60 minute response time regardless of whether your emergency is a toothache or a limb that's laying on the grass. So the orange alerts have an entire category all their own, where if we're looking at a combined total of a certain number of seconds or minutes that we've spent in red alert, I think the number for the first six months of this year that we spent in orange alert, it's over 250,000 seconds. 
so that we died, divide by 60, divide by 60, it, we're ending up with hours per day where we weren't necessarily in a red alert, but we had one ambulance available for 1.7 million people, where the industry recommended average is about 20,000 citizens to one ambulance. And I don't think we've been there since about 2013 or 14, if they were available. Yeah, there's an interesting statistic. Like when we saw a press release from the HSAA where in 2019 they talked about there were 116 days worth of red alerts in uh, in Calgary. Um, they saw a 20% increase in the the number of, of calls that paramedics were going on, but they only saw a 3.4 increase, 3.4% increase in the number of paramedics that were added to the to the system. It's worth noting probably that on most ambulances, there's, there's two paramedics. So you can say we did a 3.4% increase for 2019, but it really works out to being like 1.7. And with a, with a, a growth of 20% of, of use, I mean, I'm not a numbers guy, but it doesn't seem like those things match. Yeah, if we're talking about responding to the, the average percent increase in call volume, with an increase in staff that's proportionate in any way. Um, we keep hearing in the news these days as the citizens of this province that there's been this unprecedented increase in all types of calls, 30% across the board since pre-pandemic levels. And I'm thinking if I'm the franchise owner of a burger joint and I sell 30% more burgers, I'm gonna have to do a little bit of number crunching and order 30% more napkins, hire 30% more staff, do 30% more of everything. I need the buns, I need the tomatoes. But in EMS, it just seems like throwing a 3% increase in staff, to quote them, at a 30% increase in call volume, it's not quite enough to stem the tide. And if we're going to use that as our rubric, that we're going to be adding staff to the system in response to the call volume increase, I think a couple hard questions need to be asked of either the minister or Alberta Health Services. What was the increase in the three years before the pandemic? Because it sounds like that's about a 50% increase with an even smaller increase in staff to tackle it. So now over a seven to eight year period, we're working at more than 50% more call volume, but we're still at single digits for the number of staff that have been attracted or retained to address it. Okay. Now we've been talking largely about the, the Calgary zone. Two of the big concerns that have gotten a lot of media time that I'm curious if you have any data on have to do with, uh, and let's, let's start with the, the suburban question. So one of the things that's been highlighted, there's certainly been no shortage of media stories where the NDP and other, let's go with interested parties, have expressed concerns with the fact that when Calgary proper, when the, the municipality of Calgary runs out of ambulances for a whole list of reasons, the next step in the equation, if there's no ambulances available, is for Calgary to basically say to Airdrie, hey, that's a real nice ambulance you've got sitting there. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to borrow it for a while and keep your fingers crossed for, for how things go in Airdrie. Do you have any data? Has, have you had any FOIPs around what those times or what the impact of, of those rural trucks being pulled into Calgary look like? There have already been studies carried out, peer reviewed, et cetera, um, that showed there, there's obviously a correlation between delayed response times in the suburban rural area and outcomes that are worse for those patients, especially for those trauma, the stroke, the heart attack. Um, 
the data I requested basically was just spreadsheets of the truck shutdowns and seeing how disproportionately they're affecting a community where if Calgary's got approximately 40 ambulances on a given day and the surrounding communities collectively have 20, losing that one ambulance in Okotoks, it hurts a lot more for the citizens of that city than it hurts Calgary to lose one of its own. And you can't fault the logic with pulling everything into the most densely populated point. If you've only got the one ambulance, it's supposed to head to stampede grounds and do laps until it's got a call, whether that calls in Chestermere or Banff, you don't know, but it does make sense to pull it to the geographical center. But uh, as far as the growth year over year, we could almost stack the charts of the truck shutdowns, both in Metro, inter-facility transfer and suburban rural, right up with the red alert and orange alert charts. Cause I'm looking at 2019, 20 and 21, the truck shutdowns for suburban rural are 77, for the entire year of 2019, 238 the following year. By 2021, 713 ambulances in a year. So we're getting more than one a day shut down. And I'll have to dive into the spreadsheet for 2022. I've got the first half of the year for that. But going for a total truck shutdown, if I'm gonna start, uh, bear with me here, in 2019 in the Calgary zone. So we're leaving out Grand Prairie, Wood Buffalo, Edmonton. Yeah, we're, we're pretty focused at 1.7 million box. In 2019, we shut down 1,379 resources of any type. That's Tango vans right up to PRUs, just like the uh, public safety or TEMS units that you might've been familiar with. 2020, we jump up to 3,330. 2021, I've got to scroll way down to the bottom of the spreadsheet just to get the number of rows. We're at 5,615 resource shutdowns in a calendar year. And then I think I've got just the first six months of this year. Stand by, scrolling, scrolling, still scrolling. So in the first six months of this year, I think just like the red alerts, we beat the entire calendar year of 2020, where we've got 4,270 units have been shut down just this year. In the first six months. Yeah, that's in uh, January 1st to June 30th. And for anyone taking notes um, from the outside, I can reference the FOIP request numbers, but since I've used these ones publicly before, I'm, I'm not too worried about anyone worried about their legitimacy. These are directly from the privacy department of AHS through legitimate FOIP requests. And that tells you how many times Vulcan shut down. That's how many times Cochrane, Claris Home, Calgary, even a few supervisor trucks or the, the peak ambulances that just work Monday to Friday. It's just a spreadsheet top to bottom and it says how many hours they were shut down out of their shift. So you can total the number of hours and lockstep all the way up so just to be clear uh and and make sure that we're we're not vernacularing too much uh what's what's a truck shutdown i mean it sounds pretty self-explanatory but i don't want to make any assumptions so for our audience what is your understanding of what a truck shutdown is it's very gracious of you to throw the definitions over to me when when you're perfectly good at explaining them yourself but for the layperson, 
like you mentioned earlier, an ambulance needs two people. There's, there's two souls on board that have some sort of certification or training in emergency medical response. Um, the levels of that vary, and it's up to you whether you want to dive into that. But let's say even one person calls in sick on an ambulance. That ambulance can't operate as normal. It can't transport a patient with a single person because you can't both attend to the emergency care and drive the truck at the same time. So a truck shutdown, truck to us in the industry would mean anything from a patient transport van to an SUV up to the transport ambulance that you probably think of when you hear about paramedics and 911. And a truck shutdown is basically one of them that's had to be parked and locked for a certain duration of its shift, whether it's the whole thing or a partial book off, and it can't help anybody. Your taxes don't change when those get shut down. If anything, it costs more because if they wanna pull someone in on overtime to fill that seat on a last minute notice, or even with notice ahead of time, that costs more. So it's not like we're getting a discount for a prorated number of tax dollars for ambulances shut down. And that's affecting uh, allied agency partners as well. So we have specialty ambulances that work um, in conjunction with things like the Calgary police that are not embedded with the police. They are still an Alberta Health Services resource or SUV. But if we shut down all of our tactically trained paramedics for a weekend, and the police have a hostile takedown that they really would have wanted us to be there for, we're letting them down. They've, they've invested time and effort and a lot of money in these agency partnerships, and we're not there for these guys. One of the other hot button conversation points, let's go with, uh, that has been, again, widely reported in the media, uh, has to do with something called hallway weights. We saw a news story come out of Okotoks online on August 15th, where they were talking about the fact that the, the NDP are saying, oh, this is very, very bad and everybody should blame the UCP, even though, as we established, the problem started in 2012. Um, but in that story as well, there was a proposal from a paramedic who I'm not going to name because I don't have permission to do that. If you want to look it up in the news story, fill your boots, but I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, and one of the biggest concerns that was raised was uh, around the question of hallway weights. Um, and this has been something that was defined by, by Mike Parker, so I'm going to use that as my, my reference point. And effectively, my understanding is that's when a ambulance transport a patient to a healthcare facility. The healthcare facility says, ah, oh, there's no room at the inn. We don't even have a manger, but we have this great hallway you can hang out in. And they effectively park the ambulance crew and the patient down the hallway until there's a bed that they feel is appropriate for that patient. This ties up significant resources, uh, according to the NDP and a lot of other media reports. Do you have any FOIP information on what those hallway wait times look like? Thank you for asking. I'm flattered. Uh, yeah, I've actually got to give credit for this to a reporter from CTV. Uh, and she graciously shared those results with me from a request in uh, 2020 or 2021. And it looks like provincially, we average between 220,000 and 300,000 hours of hallway waits. And they do break them down per zone. But we went one step further and said, what are the estimated costs in dollar amounts of the transfer of care delays? And that's a little more staggering where we went back to 2015 and found that just for that calendar year, 
we paid $31 million for ambulances to sit in hallways. Fast forward a little bit, we're paying more than $40 million a year now, and that's 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020 fiscal years, 42,000 or $42 million or more, where someone has estimated the cost of an ambulance offload delay at somewhere around, let's see here, if we've got a total number of hours spent in the hallway in 2020 at 289,573, and the cost for that year was 43 million, $311,414. And we just divide it by that number of hours. Someone thinks it costs $150 an hour for an ambulance to sit in a hospital hallway. There are so many intangibles that we won't be able to quantify attached to that because if that ambulance isn't in the system, we can't take emergency calls. If we can't take emergency calls, we get closer and closer to those red and orange alerts if we're not already in them. And the next person that needs that ambulance doesn't get it. But if our budget provincially is just a, a hair over $600 million a year, and we're spending 40 million of that just on waiting around to transfer the patients, which I'd say is supposed to make up a little fraction of our job, I think some harder questions need to be answered about where the attention should be going, where the budget dollars should be going to, and I don't think anyone's going to want 40 out of 600 going toward these offload delays. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a small percentage of a budget. And this is a problem that's been identified. I mean, we've talked about the, the number of calls and the, the huge growth in the number of calls. Um, but the, the problem of the, the hallway weights piece, I mean, going back to the global story that we referenced at the beginning, um, where it had the, the zero red alerts in Calgary, even back then, then health minister uh, Stephen Mandel was saying these hallway weights, we got to do something. Um, and, and yet I didn't see anything definitive in the, the, the publicly released 10 point plan, um, to address the, the hallway weights. Am I, did I miss something? Uh, if you did that, I, that I missed it too. Um, and I wouldn't want to be the guys that are tasked with decisively and definitively ending hallway waits. Yeah. I don't want to be in their shoes because there are a lot of moving parts. It's not as simple as allowing paramedics to have the autonomy to say, no, thank you. I'd rather not wait and physically leave the patient there with a nurse because pretty soon you're just going to have 40 patients in the hallway that have no one caring for them. And, uh, you do have to work with a number of bargaining units, even a number of employers in some cases, if it's like the uh, a hospital that's not part of Alberta Health Services, they're a contract provider. However, the excuse that, well, it's happening everywhere, so there's nothing we can do about it, doesn't quite hit the mark with me when we've got an entire nation, perhaps an entire continent's worth of experience to draw on then. You look at the aggressive ways that other places are tackling this with things like task forces where the hospital and the EMS managers and the public meet quarterly and say, everyone's got to bring an idea that the other has to try and everyone's got to give it a 90 day good go. Or fit to sit is a program that's starting to get a little bit of traction where a well-defined parameter of 
vital signs, condition, the stability of a patient is being used by both sides. And if it's mutually agreed upon ahead of time that if someone meets the criteria, then they hit the waiting room. They don't need paramedics to wait with them. We can't even get the hospitals within our own city in Calgary to agree on a predetermined set of parameters for that. And everything's going to be case by case, no matter what, even if someone's blood pressure, heart rate, and objective pain scale are within the parameters of the fit to sit program, if they're 99 years old and you're just a little too worried about them, no one in good conscience wants to park someone where they're gonna grow cobwebs waiting for a doctor to see them. But we've even had pilot projects bear fruit in the province of Alberta, as far as the Fort McLeod Hospital trialing a program where after 8 p.m., they physically removed all the chairs from their waiting room. So if you wanted to malinger for a doctor for seven hours, you'd physically have to stand up. And instead, what they did was get all of their residents and doctors on board. They all had to agree to participate and one of them would park themselves at the entrance. And as patients came in, whether it was for a sore throat, chest pain, sudden onset headache, a doctor was the first person they talked to. And startlingly, the patient satisfaction of this interaction went up compared to the conventional have a nurse triage you, sit for four hours, have a doctor see you, because they said, I got the advice of a doctor within 30 seconds. Half the time, the doctor sent them down the hallway to the pharmacy and said, you likely have strep throat, I'm going to get some antibiotic and chloroseptic spray and you can go home. Or he'd flag one of the nurses and say, I just want a quick ECG to rule out cardiac chest pain. And if we don't get any hits on the ECG, then this person can take X, Y, and Z medications, go home and follow up. They also had to be willing to tell that person that came in with gout, there's nothing we're going to be able to do to realistically manage this here and give them the, sorry, we're just not going to see you here tonight. And I don't know why these programs don't get trialed for longer and for a greater number of areas, but there are some great ideas out there. I just wish there was a little more appetite from the provincial healthcare provider to try some of them. And if they don't bear fruit after 90 days, sure, we tried and it didn't fit. But to say, well, there's nothing we can do because everywhere's having the same problem. It's not my favorite flavor. Yeah, no, I can. And certainly, I mean, we're, we're seeing more and more stories about the, the healthcare system being overwhelmed. One of the big political conversations that we're seeing a lot right now is, is how do we manage the, the, the volume of need within the, the provincial healthcare system? This is one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, policies being floated about expanding private healthcare, because that's the only way. And it's fascinating that, you know, that program that you just described there, that works within the current confines of the system by and large it just maybe makes people a little bit uncomfortable from time to time that isn't getting trialed wider but we have politicians of all stripes entertaining massive changes to how we deliver health care in the province of alberta i'm curious are there any other what are the big issues that you wish people knew about the the data that that you have have foiled? What are, the, what are the things that you wish more members of the public were aware of? I wish they were aware that they could just reach in and grab the data for themselves. Instead of these vague and difficult to combat problems, there are spreadsheets, there are graphs, there is a bottom line somewhere if something is improving, getting worse, or staying the same. And I think the attention should be evidence-based in that regard. If, if we're outpacing every other municipality and province in the nation for red alerts, 
I think we need to have those emergency all night meeting sessions where they're calling the guy in New Zealand, they're calling the chief in Philadelphia and saying, what are you guys doing? Because we are rapidly approaching constant red alert with calls stacked 24 hours a day. And we're going to hit that target faster than any other city in North America. I also think that no one person can be blamed. There are a confluence of factors. No one person caused the pandemic. No one person caused 30 years out of the last 36 of conservative governments in a province that have pushed for privatized healthcare. So if success is that moving target, the, the solutions that are gonna fix it aren't, aren't single and static either. We almost have to start trying, instead of dying by death by a thousand cuts, we're gonna have to try a thousand band-aids and stop looking for the one that's gonna cure everything at the same time. One of the ideas that seems to pop up a bunch more is the transfer payments from the federal government. Again, I'm no policy expert, but it sounds like around 22% of our healthcare is subsidized by the feds. But if more than half of our provincial budget in most provinces goes toward healthcare, it seems like you almost have to start there. And it physically pains me to bring up cliches over and over, but an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure. And if we're looking at harm reduction, we need to look at it in terms of dollars. Like if we're closing the harm reduction sites, if we're reducing the mental health supports, if we're literally de-indexing the assured income for the severely handicapped that gets them the care that keeps them out of the healthcare system. I know one of your recent guests uh, went into that in detail. We need to stop doing that. It's, it's gonna be painful for any sitting administration to spend $10 now on something that might or might not happen. But if you can break it down in terms of saving $1,000 later by doing it, we need some triggers to be pulled and we need them to be pulled pretty soon. And EMS isn't unique in this regard. The hospitals are hemorrhaging their, their staff to travel agencies. They're, they're hemorrhaging their overtime hours to people that just say, I can't do it anymore. I gotta start calling in for some of my nights. It's not just EMS. That's just the one that I have the most clear lens through but we do need to start somewhere instead of just saying, well, it's happening everywhere. There's nothing we can do. The last question that I wanted to, the last topic that I wanted to hit on with you a bit is the whole FOIP process. And you, you, you teed me up for it beautifully with, I wish more people know they could do this. I think it's, it's important to highlight literally anyone can FOIP anything affiliated with the, the government, except perhaps the war room. Um, but, uh, it really is quite, quite simple and you never know what you're going to get when we did the, and, and we're, I got to be clear. I've said this many times before. I will keep saying it. We are not journalists here. Um, we, we stumbled upon a, a FOIP request that, that revealed all of the mask silliness that happened with the, the education ministry and, and friends of Ms. LaGrange. Um, we're not journalists. We just did a FOIP. You're not a journalist, I'm assuming. Not yet. No one's, okay. no one's sent any offers in yet. There we go. So you're just a concerned person who wants to know, hey, what's going on here? There's been a lot of negativity about the the FOIP process. And certainly we've seen no shortage of stories in the media about how, especially when we start to talk about the the conversations that occur within political parties they're they're jumping to platforms that are are much harder to to track they're not using internal communications but when we're talking about 
empirical data, when we're talking about things like, as you've, you've said, the number of hours that a thing has happened for, that's eligible to literally anyone who, who does the request. What was your experience with the FOIP process been like? What are the, and are there any tips that you'd give Joe Average, who's, who's, or Jill Average, who's watching or listening to the show right now, if they wanted to know how many hours, I don't know of a thing that a thing is doing. I ran out of gas on that one. What tips would you give them? I've got to start with, it's an acquired taste. Um, when I put that very first request in, I just wanted to know, are Airdrie's ambulances really spending their entire days in Calgary? Short answer, yes, they were. If 80% of the workload of a municipality takes place in another distant city, maybe that other city just needs a little more help. But I found it was like stumbling into this secret lemon grove, but it was only lemons. And all you were going to find is stuff that would make your mouth pucker. And you know what? People love lemons. They love it as a garnish. They love it as a, an accent. They love it as a flavor. But no one wants to eat just lemons. And I found that with the absolutely ruthless news cycle, I could get a little bit of attention. I could agitate a little bit. I could provoke a little bit of dialogue by throwing something out there that I thought was a lot of meat on a bone. But people don't seem to want all bad news all the time. And when you find that your province and specifically your municipality or your region are leading the nation in the red alerts, the hallway waits, the number of staff that are off work for physical and non-physical injuries, my tip would be ask for things that are quantifiable and not opinions. And just feel free to ask the people that are considered at least familiar with the field. I've got to give kudos to the journalists in this region that have started asking paramedics, what should I ask AHS? What should I ask the government of Alberta? Because I was sort of stumbling around in the room by myself in the dark saying, I, I wonder if they track this. I wonder if they track that. But I have found that at least for Alberta Health Services, who has their own very robust FOIA pathway, the analysts that provide the results, they are eminently reasonable. You can just ask them if they track something before you commit that $25 a month of your time. And it's filling out a single PDF and emailing it to privacy at ahos.ca and saying, this is the information I'd like. This is where I think it's kept as far as department. And they'll let you know, they'll give you your money back if it's not kept there. And then the FOIP legislation nationwide has been around for a long time. I think maybe a little more scrutiny needs to be had for whistleblower legislation, where like we've disclaimed at the start and throughout this, these are our personal opinions. We're not speaking on behalf of an employer, an agency. This is individual, personal, private opinions, disclosing nothing that's personal, nothing that's related to health, nothing that's business related. But we were just ranked last out of 61 countries for government accountability projects related to whistleblower acts. And it's hard if you wanna work for an agency that is supposed to deliver a service to the public and you're beholden to a professional college with its own ethical obligations, your upbringing says what's right, what's wrong. And even your employer has core values and guiding principles that say you are supposed to do the most right thing most of the time. It's a, it's a little puzzling to me then that that will clash with the lived experience of specific people who want to help. They want to find the information. They want to share the information, 
and then they'll suffer professional consequences for it. So I'd say ask someone that you know that's in a field that you want to know more about. This can be police, this can be fire, this can be EMS. But if it's run by an agency that's considered public, most of the stuff that is charted and graphed and spreadsheeted is kept for the reasons of scrutiny, for oversight. And if I ever found myself through happenstance or luck or fate in a position where I could have a few pet projects, one of them would be to decide which public agencies are large enough and complicated enough that they deserve a watchdog of their own. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, to your point in regards to the, the information that's available, I imagine, he said cautiously, speaking only for himself, <laughs> it's turning into a bit of a gag now. Um, uh, if someone was to say to the city of Calgary, I'll take this out of the provincial sphere. Uh, if someone was to say to the city of Calgary, hey, I'd really like to know how many times fire trucks were shut down in 2021 and the city of Calgary came back with, oh, we don't track that. I mean, that's, that's a conversation worth having in and of itself. So I, 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 would, I would speculate that probably most of the information that people would care about is probably being tracked. And then if you want to know about the things, 25 bucks and waiting a little while is, is worth it. Am I wrong? No, I've, I've found uh, a, lot of, a lot of return for the dollar in both the dialogue that FOIP requests generated and the interest that it peaked in certain areas. And if I had the same level of concern about uh, municipal policing or municipal fire departments that I did with the provincial EMS service, I'd be throwing FOIP requests in those directions too. And there is an arm's length government body called the Public Interest Commissioner that oversees the FOIP process. And if you feel you've been unfairly denied or that the information returned was less than forthcoming, that's the first place that you could start. So there, there are channels if you don't think you're being given the full story. But Alberta Health Services has has well tread its own channel on how FOIP requests go through it. And I found it to be accessible. I found it to be simple. It's easy to understand. And like I said, the, the analysts themselves have been very reasonable in answering questions or explaining why certain things are redacted and other things aren't. And if you want something to be tracked, we're not powerless as constituents of this province. You can request things of a public body and say, I'd like you to start tracking this thing because there's obviously a public appetite for it. I have one more question I'm going to ask, but before I do, um, is there anything else you'd like people to know? I made a few promises before agreeing to be on your highly publicized show. That's fair. With no segue and no jumping right into it, the shameless plugs just start with the Airdrie Health Foundation, which was founded by Michelle Bates a number of years ago after losing her son, and through a number of circumstances, she made it her mission to make sure that the Airdrie Urgent Care Center, which is now serving more than 80,000 people, was going to become a 24-hour facility. Recently, it was highly publicized that they had to do some shutdowns overnight due to a lack of physicians to keep the facility open, not just during the busiest peak stampede weekends that we have, but during a number of weeks following that every weekend. Yeah, they were projecting and, uh, for like eight weeks. Like a pebble in a pond, that sound out ripples. That meant that every patient in Airdrie that required EMS had to go to another city just to be seen by a doctor if it wasn't during business hours, weekdays. 
And uh, that hurt people. But I want to say that the success story that came out of a lot of mountains being moved in a short period of time at a number of levels of government, it meant dollars had to be moved, it meant people had to be headhunted. They got it open again. And it's an emotional roller coaster if you did want to ask your questions of Michelle and the Airdrie Health Foundation. But I learned from her process that the pathway to getting things changed as just a resident that feels powerless in a giant province with its huge unfathomable budgets, that pathway is paved with meetings with all the people that I always assumed were supposed to notice these things before I did and act on them and then tell me the success story before it became a tragedy. And so you asked me if there's anything I wanted to talk about and that's what I wanted to insert in there is that if you feel like someone should be noticing, should be changing something, should be acting on your behalf, schedule a meeting, send an email, make a phone call, because maybe they've noticed and they just wanted to know how many of their representative constituents noticed too. But you're not powerless in, in democratic nations like ours. There are processes, there are, there are ways to request information and there's ways to send it up the chain. On to your last question. Well, I gotta say, I really appreciate that you say that because I think one of the problems that I'm going to soapbox for just a sec here myself, but I think one of the problems that we have in Alberta right now is that there is a, I'll say, surplus of people who are feeling powerless. And because they're unfamiliar with those processes and they feel dissatisfied with those processes, we're seeing more and more people start to talk about extremes. And those extremes are not where anything good ever happens. Uh, so I, I, I just wanted to say thank you for bringing that up. My last question comes in two parts. Are, are you a gamer? Uh, I'm afraid to reveal my true power level on the internet for everyone to see, but you could say that. Do you ever play a video game called Defense of the Ancients 2? I'm pretty familiar, but I'm not good enough that I ever reached a competitive level and not nearly the level that I would be comfortable streaming it online because everyone's comments would be, why aren't you pushing mid? Why aren't you supporting? Why aren't you building Aquilas? <laughs> if you know, you know. I have no idea, but I appreciate you answering that question. Um, Ryan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today to uh, provide some context on the publicly available data that you obtained uh, that is available to anyone through the FOIP request. And there's lots of media stories out there that people can refer to. There are excellent journalists, which we're not, that do amazing work and amazing research on these things. And uh, that's, that's all I have to say about that. So thanks, thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me, and uh, back to you with the weather, Jim. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here at The Breakdown, we would love it if you swung by our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab and signed up for a small monthly sponsorship of the work that we're trying to do here. It is because of the support that we receive from our Patreon sponsors that we're able to continually up our game, and it is tremendously appreciated. So I want to throw a big thank you out to them, and you can go ahead and visit that website and join and support us as well because we need all the help we can get. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of these important conversations. And we will see you next time on The Breakdown.